0: Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host Ruth Preedy. In today's episode we're going to discuss IFRS 10 Consolidated Financial Statements and it is such a huge statement that we're actually going to divide it into two episodes. So we're going to have a part one that we're doing today, and then we'll come back to part two in the future. Joining me today in the podcast studio, I have Mary Dolson, one of our lead IFRS technical partners. Welcome back, Mary.
1: Hi, Rick, happy to be here.
0: So IFRS 10, so that deals with consolidated financial statements that are also effectively known as group accounts. And at a very high level, You've got a parent and his subsidiaries, and they're viewed as a single economic entity. And one of the key things that IFRS 10 covers is the concept of control. So let's start way back when, in where the story begins, Mary. When IFRS 10 was brought in, it replaces IS 27 and SIC 12. So what were the differences? So I is called IS 27,
1: because IS 27 today is just about separates, right? Separate financial statements. So old IS-27 was essentially the voting rights piece of literature. And it said, if you controlled entities through voting rights, you consolidated them. And there was an interpretation of IS-27 called SIC-12. And SIC-12 really talked about special purpose entities or things that weren't controlled through voting rights. And SIC-12 was a powerful weapon in the hands of a strong-minded technical partner. So somebody like me... Could stick a structured entity or a special purpose entity to anybody's balance sheet who had been associated with it at any point during its life. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, maybe that 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 approach had its merits, and, and some old school partners like me, occasionally we long for the days of SIG 12, yeah, which said. said, What's the right answer? Okay, you get the, the thing. Right? But All we had was voting rights and structured entities and controls or special purpose entities. And control actually arises in a number of different ways. So when they rewrote the consolidation standard, it is mainly focused on how control arises, right? And there's a little bit at the back about, you know, how you do your consolidation, right? But that's essentially a little bit mechanical it really does focus, the standard and the application guidance focus on, is there control? It's a one-stop shop to control. It is. And, and so it, it touches things now that we just didn't have guidance on before. So it, it talks about things like delegated power. So if I've appointed somebody to act for me, that party is essentially my agent, right? It also looks at things like, managed money. So if I set up an investment fund and I've got you know other people's money in the fund, but essentially I control all of the activities around that fund, why don't I control the funds? So it, it explains in what circumstances a money manager might control or not control uh, funds under management. It also talks about de facto control it doesn't use that term and it looks at things like potential voting rights.
0: Okay, so some of those will come back into it in another episode. So you mentioned there you long for SIG 12 you miss it. Is I press 10 an improvement? I do think it's a better standard. It's a
1: better standard because it goes, it actually covers the entire spectrum of, of circumstances in which control can arise. Right? But most control decisions are so straightforward that we as technical accountants really don't stop to think about them. So if you think about any multinational or any group, it might have, I mean, I think we've got clients that have got hundreds of subsidiaries, right, distributed across the world. Nobody stops to think, does, you know, Alphabet, Google as was, you know, control all of its legal entities, subsidiaries around the world, right? So in, in essence, we essentially kind of blow by that consolidation decision without really stopping to think about it because it's transparent and an entity that's controlled through voting rights and where all of the benefits of those activities flow back to me as the interest holder meets the conditions for control, right? And control is power. So I can, I can actually direct the activities of the entity, relevant activities of the entity returns, so I benefit or suffer from the performance of the entity, right? And you can see the link between my power and those returns.
0: Okay, so what you're telling me, Mary, is normally I see an r a stone question. I'm not going to lie, I run a mile because I think it scares me. But (laughs) you're saying it's all easy. I don't need to worry. 99%
1: Ninety-nine percent of them are easy. The one percent are like really difficult. <laughs> That's the bit, yeah. and, and you know, they they sometimes these questions are like brain melting. Like, and you sit there with the whiteboard and some markers and a couple of smart partners. And by the end of it, you actually
0: have a really serious headache. Yeah, it well, hurts. That's yes. why I ran away. <laughs> I'll stick to a sporty one. Okay, so you told us there about the three elements in the standard. Can we go through each in turn just to get the basics before we get into the difficult bits? I think the first thing there you talked about was power. Right.
1: Power is basically kind of what it says on the tin. It's the ability to tell somebody what to do. Right. And if you think about, we'll go back to the subsidiary of the multinationals, you know, a subsidiary of the multinationals, whoever is running that subsidiary is going to take their direction, their instructions from parent company, the headquarters of the parent company, wherever it is, right? So the parent company demonstrates that it has its power, it appoints management, it tells management what they're gonna do. So they might tell management, okay, you're you know offering internet services or you're you know gonna assemble cars or you're going to sell drugs, whatever it is, you know, you're going to execute my business purposes.
0: Okay. And those things that you've described, I think the standard calls relevant activities. Yes. What other relevant activities might there be? Relevant activities broadly are
1: are the levers, the important decisions that have to be made in an entity. Right? So it's what does the entity do? Does it buy? Does it sell? Does it hold? Does it offer services? You know, Does it run a corner shop? Does it run a manufacturing plant? So, so what it does operationally is usually a relevant activity how is it financed? Do I borrow money? Do I have, you know, equity capital? Do I put my own, am I a founder shareholder? I put my own money in. So how it's financed also usually a relevant activity. And strategically, where am I going? What am I going to do? You know, can I sell? Can I buy? Those are, those are relevant activities.
0: Okay. So you identify the relevant activities and then you're effectively looking for the party that has power over Mm -hmm. those relevant activities. Yes. The other bit you mentioned was returns. So what is a return? Cash? Cash is always nice. Yeah. Yes, please. But
1: you know, that's a realization concept, and we're actually in a recognition framework here. Right? So in, in the simplest, in the simplest example, if you own a share, right? So you own some shares as a private person, your ability to get returns from those shares is usually twofold. You can hold them and collect dividends, right? Or you can sell them to someone else, right? So that's the simplest way in which you might get returns. So I'm, you know, the parent company and I've got 150 operating subsidiaries around the world. So they're probably providing me with returns through dividends. They may be providing me with returns through cleverly structured transfer pricing, intercompany, interest on intercompany loans, management fees, you know, creating profits, figuring out how to get those profits back to the parent in a tax efficient way.
0: And does return always have to be positive? No, uh, business isn't always successful.
1: I think I read uh, somewhere that like nine out of ten restaurants that open in a major city fail in a year. Yeah, I mean, there's some some horrifying statistics like that. So obviously, business activity fails, companies go bankrupt. Yeah, and in that case, so if you had shares in the company that went bankrupt, what happened to you?
0: I oh, probably would. <laughs>
1: Right. <laughs> well, you lost all your money yes. right so you had negative returns. Yes. so you invested your principal and not yes. only do you are you not getting any dividends, you can't sell your shares to anybody because they're worthless yes. So in that case you've absorbed
0: negative returns okay
1: Returns can also be non-financial. It's harder it, once we're talking about sort of non-financial returns or not immediately obvious financial returns, then we start to get into the more difficult control
0: discussions. So what is an example of a normal financial
1: return? So if a big company sets up a charity to do good things in its name to maybe diffuse bad press because they're you know, pillaging the earth or you know, uh, selling cigarettes or whatever it is. you know, So if they set up some charity to generate positive publicity and they control the directors, they appoint the directors of that charity, even if the charitable purpose has been established, pre-established, you know, it's got my name on it, me being the corporate, and I control, you know, who who runs that charity, and it's there to actually make me look like a good corporate citizen or make me look more like a good corporate citizen. I probably have reputational returns
0: from that business. Wow, so that'll be hard, definitely harder to spot than yep. some of the more easy ones we went through. Okay, so I think that really helps go through the basics of what IFRS 10 says. So we're going to hold on tight now and get into the tricky bits. I think the first thing you talked about or we talked about was relevant activities are usually obvious. But is there scenarios where actually it's quite hard to work out what the relevant activity is?
1: Well, it's not always you can usually spot the relevant activities, but it's whether or not the equity holders have the ability to to execute those relevant activities or change those relevant activities. So traditionally, a structured entity like a collateralized debt obligation, for example, would be set up with a narrow and well-defined purpose, which is I'm only going to buy high quality corporate bonds, right? And even if I am an equity holder in that entity, I probably don't have the ability to change what it can and can't do. So it can't become an internet service provider just because it wants to, just because I, as the equity holder, wanted to. It yeah. must do what it was established to do. So when you've got narrow and well-defined purpose, and that purpose can't be changed by the ostensible equity holders, then you're probably into who controls the relevant activities and, and maybe were the relevant activities set up such that another party actually has much more control over them than the ostensible holders of the equity instruments.
0: okay so I think in the standards you you get into a discussion around what was the purpose and design yes. of when it was set up effectively mm-hmm. so what are we looking out for then for purpose and design to help us work out who's got control if it's if it, bo- it sounds like it's not voting rights it's not voting
1: rights so we're we're looking for, I hate to say it to a degree we back solve from benefits. So who's got benefits or who's got exposure, right? Whose business purpose does it meet, right? So I'm a pharmaceutical company and a research organization comes to me with a very clever proposal. They're going to go they're gonna go away and work on something for me, right? So we set up a new co and the new co can only do research on that compound it's got a specified period of time and at the end of the day the Research organization can't sell the shares in that to somebody else There will never be any dividends because it's only ever going to have expenses It can't seek third-party funding because I big pharmaceutical company really want to control what's going on So I'm gonna provide all the funding You're the research organization. You're gonna do all the work, right in that case it's got a narrow and well-defined objective. It never expects to be like a normal business, right? To to be able to grow and prosper and do different things. Actually, sell the drugs or whatever. Yeah, exactly. it's uh, the maybe the research organization holds the equity shares, but they can't sell them to anybody else, right? Or if they did sell them, you immediately sever the license and all of the IP, you know, intellectual property in the new co reverts to the pharma company. Okay. So. So they can't really benefit from their interest holding other than they're probably
0: there. They're going to get
1: paid to do the research.
0: Okay. Right. So so that's an example where one party might have shares, but actually because of the way it was set up, they don't have control mm-hmm. over.
1: Yeah. Over so ends. whose business purpose at the end of the day, is it benefiting, right? It's actually in that case, it's going to benefit the pharma company because They want the drug to succeed. And if the drug succeeds, it's going to be their drug and it's going to go, you know, it's going to be their revenue, their cost, kind of their, they're going to stand behind it, their reputation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to essentially roll back into their bigger business
0: and disappear. Okay. And this is what we call structured entities. It's the structured entity. Okay. And is there anything else that we should make our listeners aware of if we've got a structured entity?
1: With the structured entity, quite often asset selection is the most important thing. So if we go back to our say it say I'm good we 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 always tried to find like a genuine autopilot entity and we've never really found one because at the beginning somebody has to choose what assets go into my structured entity right so even if it's something simple is it can only buy you know high quality US government bonds of a specified maturity you know and that's all it can ever own right yep. somebody has to make that decision and then somebody actually to actually execute that right but the party who makes the decision about what it's going to own probably has a lot to say about that might be its only relevant activity but in any entity in any structured entity like that you always have to look and see what happens if things go bad right so things go badly the u.s government goes bankrupt right and they renege on all of their treasury bill obligations what does the entity do who gets to decide what to do next right and quite often you'll see that that's not the equity interest holders or the kind of day-to-day asset manager. Quite often that will come back to the founders, right, the people who were there at the beginning and who participated in the purpose and design of the thing.
0: Okay. Oh, so I don't like that. We have to focus on the negative bits. What happens if everything goes wrong? Well,
1: to me, that that's quite often the silver bullet question. If everything toddles along, you know, as envisioned by its, its creators, yeah happening? Uh, things, <laughs> things seem fine. It's the provisions that, that get put in place for when things go bad that really tell you who really has an interest here, whose interest is it, whose structured entity is
0: it. So there you go, listeners. Our biggest top tip from Mary Dolson today is look at what happens when it all goes wrong, and that's who controls. <laughs> because what rights have I reserved for
1: myself in an extreme situation?
0: perfect really helpful is there any other tips anything else you want to to tell the listeners before we close out our 20 minutes so we talked about relevant activities
1: we talked about returns the other thing you need to see is the link between the two right so you know in our normal operating company you know i make the bold decision that despite kind of current trends in retail I'm going to open a thousand retail stores across the UK, right? That is a a great example of a strategic and operating decision, right? And if I have the power to do that, clearly I have relevant activities, and then I lose everybody tons of money, right? (laughs) Right? So I've demonstrated that I've generated returns, in this case, negative negative returns from that activity. so really you need to have all three. You need to have power, you need to have benefit and you need to see that your power actually essentially has the it's a lever that the, that your that your power actually over the relevant activities, it's the relevant activities are the lever that create
0: returns or destroy returns. Okay. Perfect. So we need the power, the return and the link between the two. Yes. Okay, so I think that's brought us the end of our 20 minutes. But don't worry, everyone. Mary will be back for part two where we get into the exciting things like potential voting rights and what is de facto control. I can barely contain myself. So please do listen in for our our next step in IFRS 10 but what we covered today was some of the basics of IFRS 10, what is control and then we looked at where you might see a structured entity and remember look out for what happens when it all goes bad. If you want more information about anything we've discussed today please look at our website at www.pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I'm your host Ruth Pretty. Happy Accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Waterhouse Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.